I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City. And today joining me is my friend Rachel Quedno, the program director of Strong Towns and host of the Strong Towns Bottom Up Revolution podcast. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for letting me come on the show. Yeah, it's been a little while since you've been on, so it's really nice to to have you joining me. You were living somewhere else last time we talked, so you've moved since. (laughs) Yeah, I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and now we've moved into our first home in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So it's been a fun homeownership adventure. Yeah, that's the way I try to think about it too, a homeownership adventure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Something broke the other day and I was like, what do we do? And my husband said, call the landlord. And I was like, you are the landlord. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. For us, it's mostly call my stepfather or call my dad. Yeah. (laughs) But we're figuring stuff out. Yeah. I'm learning how things work, which is important. Definitely. (laughs) So Today, we are going to be covering a really interesting article that you actually brought to me. It was published in The Urbanist by Natalie Bicknell. It is entitled, Seattle Black Faith Leaders Urge Mayor Durkin Not to Sign Amended Density Bonus Bill. So for those of you who are not aware, Black churches in Seattle are seeking to use their valuable land to benefit their communities by providing affordable housing. The Nehemiah Initiative, in partnership with the University of Washington, studied the feasibility of turning churches into uh, housing units. Overall, their research has found that projects are financially viable with income requirements at the 80% AMI or area median income level. At 60% AMI, projects become unviable. This research led to Black church leaders advocating for a density bonus bill that would enable cash-poor but land-rich religious institutions to utilize their space for new housing at the 80% AMI threshold. HB 1377, passed by the state 18 months ago, requires that cities in Washington grant density bonuses to property owners of religious institutions in exchange for the development of affordable housing. The Seattle City Council recently came to a vote deciding to shift the income requirement from the 80% AMI threshold to 60% AMI due to the last minute amendment that was introduced by council member Lisa Herbold. Critics of the amendment are claiming that this is a poison pill that effectively makes housing projects unfeasible for religious institutions. City leaders have essentially shut out minority religious institutions from utilizing the legislation. Supporters of the council members' amendment reject the supply-side argument, saying that increasing supply at 80% AMI without ensuring 
deeply affordable price points at 60% AMI is just not acceptable. So when reading this article, I felt very deeply frustrated. And I'm glad you brought it to me because it's just so interesting to see how um, we can so often let you know, perfect, I feel, become the enemy of the good. I know that that term gets used so often, but that's really what this felt like when reading this. And it just, you know, is a frustrating story. And I really feel for the people who were advocating for the legislation and then, you know, to go all the way through the state and then get to your city and the city decides to kind of last minute change its mind on how they want to implement state legislation, I, I just could imagine how frustrating that must be. I appreciate your summary at the start for people. I kind of want to just like start by breaking it down also like really, really clearly because I can, it's kind of like a niche thing. And I I feel like probably if, you know, you don't go to a church or uh, you don't live in Seattle, it's like easy to be like, oh, okay, this whatever, I don't care about this random bill. But <laughs> this is something that I've seen churches all over the country try to do, and some like very successfully, where like we have all of these churches that are like, let's be real, membership is dwindling in a lot of churches, and with it, finances and a possibility for like a financially sustainable future is is very slim for a lot of these small churches. And so the one resource that they do have, um, like a very material resource, is often land. A lot of historic churches are located, you know, in cities that have grown up around them and become very expensive. Um, But they have these properties where like the church building is in one part, but like maybe you have a large garden or yard or whatever. And so the idea that that land could be turned into housing is just like it's such a win. It like provides more housing in expensive cities that really need it. It provides an awesome, like sustainable source of income for a church that really needs this lifeline. And then it also just makes like better use of land that's probably sitting empty or like maybe it's a parking lot. So it's just like, it's just a winning for everybody. And so the idea that the possibility of this would basically be effectively completely eliminated because people have this notion that like, oh, churches, we have to hold churches to this like ridiculously high standard of, okay, they, they have to like support poor people on their property and they like set this bar that they're never effectively going to be able to pay for such a subsidized um, housing situation. And it's not going to be able to like be that financial lifeline that church is needed if there's this immensely high bar set for like who can live there. Um, Cause basically they've said that it's not really possible without huge subsidies and surprisingly, uh, like poor churches, um, minority owned churches don't have a ton of money. And so like this type of subsidy is just not possible. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's such a win because this allows churches to adapt to a society that, you know, are, you know, they're not getting as much membership and they're not getting as much funding. So that we have all of these untapped resources really that can really play a role in addressing the housing crisis and to hold them to this standard of like, well, they need to address the whole housing crisis or, you know, every price point 
is a little bit frustrating when they put together this research that, you know, it points to a feasible solution to where they could be part of the solution. I feel like it's important to put into perspective, like the reality of housing costs, because fundamentally the cost of housing is the result of like three things, which is land, construction, and labor. On the other end of that, tenants and buyers will always be the ones eating those costs unless there's some kind of subsidy happening to decrease one of those. Seattle, in particular, faces severe land scarcity. And so the churches that are within Seattle are perfectly positioned to provide housing for this reason, because the cost of land acquisition does not need to be accounted for. They already have the land. Plus, um, I don't know what their tax situation is like, but in a lot of cities, churches don't have to pay uh, taxes on the real estate, which further drives down the cost of rent on the other end. So that is critically important. And that is decreasing, you know, you may still have high construction costs, high labor costs. Those are things that are less easy to control, but this, this helps to fix um, and bring one of those pillars of costs down, which I think is important to consider. It's also important to consider that churches are nonprofit entities. Um, They do need to have a financially sustainable model. Uh, Like Chuck and I have talked on this show before, nonprofit does not mean that you just like overspend your money every year. You still have to have a financially sustainable model as any nonprofit must have, as you probably know that. But they're not yeah, obligated. Just like government or uh, for profit. Like exactly. Everybody needs to have a way to keep going and like pay their employees and everything. Exactly. And when churches are, you know, as nonprofit entities, the benefit of that is that they are not obligated to investor expectations in terms of return on investment. And so that then further drives the housing price point down. So for them to be able to drive all of these costs down and get to the 80% AMI threshold, I I can't help but think that the 60% AMI threshold is I don't want to I don't want to speak to the council members intent, but I mean it almost feels like maybe they don't want want to build housing on these properties because it's such a poison pill and it's just very I think misdirected to throw something in that is going to make this unfeasible for so many of these church property owners. Yeah. Yeah. It's like there was probably a good intention behind the, the council members amendment, but like it really wasn't thought through that by um, setting this very specific standard for the income levels that can live there. Um, as you brought up, like these costs that go into housing are pretty much fixed. Like the churches might be able to um, not have to deal with so much of the land costs, but like the the labor and the materials costs, you can't really do anything about that unless you have uh, some special subsidy and um, these churches are, are probably not getting that. And so there's just only so low that you can set rent before the project is completely unfeasible. And it seems like this adjusted bill is basically making that the case. I think also we should we should draw out here that the whole purpose behind the bill was to get rid of or to to create density bonuses and allow like a church in a neighborhood where it's mostly 
you know, lower density housing to have a slightly higher density building. And so without this, yeah, maybe a church could like build a duplex on their property or something, but that's not really going to be financially sustainable lifeline for them. It's not really going to materially change their financial situation probably or make the project feasible. So having these density bonuses seems pretty crucial to actually letting any project happen. Yeah. And I, you know, you mentioned like the council members intent was probably a a good intention, right? Uh, You know, just to give the the benefit of the doubt, good intentions. Um, However, not to stay on theme here, but the path to hell is paved with good intentions. And in this situation, um, when reading this article, it just seems so frustrating to me because here you have this this group of people who have partnered with a university. They have done studies. They have put together their own data and advocated for themselves. And you have an elected official that seemingly, you know, I don't know how the vote went down, but seemingly does not have data or some kind of logical rationale to back up what they're doing and kind of inserts themselves into this bill. And and you see that happen quite often, unfortunately, not just in the housing space, but, you know, that's really just the way politics goes. And, and so that can be incredibly frustrating because, you know, an elected official can very easily steamroll proposals that are data-driven. They don't necessarily have to bring some kind of data-driven rationale or logic. If that's their prerogative, it is what it is, but it's quite frustrating. I thought that there was a really good quote in here by Reverend James P. Broughton III. He wrote a letter to his city leadership saying, in a crisis defined by scarcity, in a city with limited land available for development, any lost affordable unit is a significant loss. The city cannot turn its back on these faith communities now. So this kind of disbelief in supply and demand seems to be a little bit of an ongoing theme that I hear quite a bit in this space. Um, And it's a little bit frustrating because it kind of ignores principles of economics in favor of stalling for kind of these more top-down approaches to affordable housing. I think on the side of the churches, they they certainly, you know, it's admitted that it's not feasible for them to do these projects at 60% AMI and or even lower than that. I think that it's important to consider that these churches are sitting on a gold mine in terms of unlocking housing supply that would undoubtedly ease market pressure even at 80% AMI which isn't worthless it's it's not 60% AMI it's not 40% AMI but housing different levels of housing and different housing price points don't happen in a vacuum things are connected and so although you may be building housing at 120 AMI or 100% AMI, 80%. I think it's important to consider that the housing market is interconnected. And so I don't know that freezing the ability to add supply because it doesn't 
meet these standards, it seems that that really does the opposite of the intent is that it, it further creates pressure the longer we stall. So ignoring that that increasing supply would release pressure really is kind of bonkers to me. It it's, feels very irrational to me, and I'm sure that there are people who disagree with that, but I certainly don't think that simply a supply driven approach to housing is going to solve all of our problems by simply adding supply. But I think supply is certainly part of part of the solution and in, in also building housing at many different price points is part of the solution. So to kind of, like you said, hold hold religious institutions to this incredibly difficult standard, you know, like I, I wrote in my notes that I sent to you earlier that it kind of feels like extreme virtue signaling. Like it feels like it, it feels like, you know, you're virtue signaling without being really backed by data. And it's the kind of amendment that politicians can like pat themselves on the back about, but and say that they're helping poor people, but then nothing gets built. So it's like, are you really helping poor people? You know, it, it's great that you passed a bill, <laughs> but if it doesn't actually create a tangible outcome, then who cares if you pass the bill? It, it, I mean, it's meaningless then. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think it's one thing to require like a, a big wealthy developer that's doing like a, a hundred unit apartment complex to have several units set aside at a certain income level that is, you know, maybe it's 60, 40, whatever percent of AMI. But like to have like small churches be required to do this, um, it's really like not being thought through. Like you can't just make housing affordable with a magic wand. Yeah, exactly. I wish that you could. We wouldn't have a problem then just so long as somebody has a magic wand. <laughs> yeah. I also, I just see this, if this bill had passed in the previous form to like put in these density bonuses and like just unlock that potential of all these churches, it really feels like an incremental approach to me. Like these churches are all over, you know, all over the city. Um, they all have, you know, probably a small amount of property that they would be able to turn into an apartment building. So we're, we're probably not talking about like a 50 story uh, complex or anything, but like just having all these churches slowly over time be able to build up more housing. I mean, that just seems like such a win. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, especially, you know, one of the points I wanted to get to is just that, you know, these are, this is a black led initiative and it's incredibly frustrating when reading this, that, you know, this article just describes a bottom-up initiative that's led by Black faith leaders and cities and city leadership in the U.S. have this long history of projecting their own solutions and ideas onto Black communities and Black leaders. And this I mean, this was led by Black leadership in an attempt to provide one of many potential solutions to the housing crisis and be part of the solution. And this situation kind of seems like city leadership is just steamrolling their efforts and once again, projecting their own solutions and ideas onto um, other people. And it's like, I, I kind of feel like they need to stop micromanaging minorities 
and let people come up with the solutions that that they believe would help help solve the problem. And I think we can all recognize that housing is so complex that these churches in Seattle are not going to solve the entire housing crisis. But why can't we get out of the way and let them try something different? Exactly. Yeah, and I'm hopeful. I was trying to do some research on like seeing if other communities are are looking at bills like this, um, and I did not delve far enough to find information yet. But I've no doubt that they are, and I've certainly seen projects like this be really successful in other expensive cities. Like um, I was part of a church in New York, and there was a church down the block from me in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I watched them, yeah, build. Uh, decent sized apartment in like a very dense, you know, great location, close to transit, um, highly desirable and, you know, challenging to find housing location um, just on some land that they weren't using. And it's just like a win. It's just a great approach. So um, let's hope that things get better in other places at least, or that Seattle figures their stuff out slowly. Yeah. Well, if it's too difficult to do in Seattle because of the politics, maybe maybe in another city. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated just in general with this approach. I would love to see this approach considered in Kansas City even in or even for the the schools that are no longer being used. I wonder if there are other institutional buildings that this kind of approach would be useful for because you know, man, we need housing and (laughs) everybody needs housing. And the land is already in existence. It's already being held. It's there. Um, In many cases, there are buildings that are ready to be rehabbed and reused. It's just, like you said, this is, this is like a total win. If we could let ourselves um, win. Get out of the way and let (laughs) it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, I think we'll leave it at there unless there's anything that you wanted to add. No, just um, appreciate getting to talk with you. Um, And also, this conversation is really making me think about um, our new housing course at Strong Towns that my colleague Daniel did. He talks a lot about these questions of like, does supply actually change things? What does it mean to like build affordable housing and what actually goes into that? So. Oh, if you I really love want to that. delve in, I recommend checking that out at academy.strongtowns.org. I have not taken that course yet, and I really ought to because I could listen to Daniel talk about housing issues for, like, hours. He, I feel like he's, like, the Strong Towns housing person. He knows. He is our go-to person, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Incredibly thoughtful. So I, I would love to hear his opinions on this. <laughs> yeah, if you need some continuing education credits for AICP, uh, you can get those too. Uh, don't remind me. I have to study. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. So um, on that note, we will end it there, but we will go to the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been up to, anything we've been doing, listening to, reading, anything that's been on our mind. So uh, what have you been up to, Rachel? I have been staring obsessively at my garden. 
that's been fun. It's mostly just doing its own thing. Tomatoes are going crazy, and then I'm just trying to cut them back so that the other stuff can still survive. But we got sweet peppers, cucumbers, and herbs. So there's about to be like a tomato downpour at my house in, I don't know, they're probably like a week or so, which is very exciting. Um, I also read a very good book I just finished. It was called Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. Kind of one of those epic novels that has people in different time periods, overlapping storylines, but the main time period or the the main storyline is about a young woman in like the 1930s, 40s, who really wants to learn to fly. And she eventually does get to um, learn to be a pilot and goes on various adventures, you know, flies in World War II. And then the book ends with her um, trying, attempting a flight like fully around the world, north to south. So very cool. Got a little dark at points, but not too dark, um, which I've had like zero willingness to read really uh, intense, depressing books over the last year. Yeah. Um, this towed the line, but it was it was really powerful and like really beautiful writing. Yeah, you don't want to uh, watch depressing movies and read depressing books and <laughs> listen Not to depressing right now, music. Man. Yeah, I know. Me too. What Me have too. you been uh, doing or reading or listening to? You know, I've been spending a lot of time outside – lately. I feel like I I hit a breaking point at some point where I just can't spend time outside of work like on a computer, watching TV, uh yeah. like I don't know. I That one it's so nice out. Ugh, it's actually disgusting in Kansas City oh, right now. Okay. Yeah, I know everybody's really probably hot? waiting for me to talk about the weather. Um yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's horribly hot right now, but still, I just I I love the summertime and the winter is horrible. So I really try to take advantage of the sunshine. And so now that I have a kayak, I've been getting out on the water and biking a lot in the dreadful heat. I'm looking into kayak covers because of spiders that get inside mm. the kayak. That's like yeah. my biggest fear. Because um, then they can just like crawl up your leg and freak Yeah, out, right? I will okay. jump out. I'm that <laughs> afraid. Yeah, I'm pretty afraid of spiders. I, I, I would be more comfortable if there was a snake inside of the kayak. <clears throat> oh yeah, okay. I would be much more comfortable with that than a spider. Um, <laughs> although I, I was kayaking a couple of weeks ago and there there were snakes swimming around, which was kind of freaky. They're, it's kind of cool, but it is very freaky. Um, they didn't come in the kayak, so it was all good. <laughs> so, yeah, I've just been getting outside and just trying to enjoy the the rest of summer that we have and trying to bear the heat. So, yeah, it's been it's been pretty good, pretty good so far. And I also have a lot of tomatoes that are almost ready. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Rachel. Always good to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I got to plug again my Strong Towns podcast, Bottom Up Revolution. Yes. If anybody wants to hear 
Uh, my tagline for it is the stories of the strong towns movement in action. And yeah, we just interview awesome advocates, activists, business owners, elected officials, just people doing great things um, every week. So yes, that is seriously one of the best podcasts that I listen to because the stories Uh, are inspiring. Like it, I am the type of person that I, when I feel down, I am brought back up by listening to other people talk about things that they're working on and stories and even just hearing about like their life story. A lot of the times what they're working on is like intermingled with, you know, how Mm -hmm. they got to where they are. And I just, I find that so inspiring. So it is such a great show. Bottom up revolution podcast. It's awesome. Thank you. And your show is awesome too. It's a great (laughs) insight. Thanks. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, um, it's because Chuck steals the show, right? And no, because whatever. our, our star, weather Abby. updates. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, thanks for having me.